When I talk about Silicon Valley, what's the first thing comes to mind? Is it shiny offices with Google and Facebook and venture capitalists and seed funds and pitching for millions? What do you think about when you think of Silicon Valley? You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a rebel entrepreneur. Welcome to the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast, and I have been excited about recording this episode all week. Today, I have with me Jennifer Vessels. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. It is lovely to be here, Alan. I'm really excited about this because, Jennifer, you've been working at the heart of Silicon Valley in different ways for many years, and you've worked with Google and Netflix and Palo Alto Networks and Adobe and all sorts of different businesses, and you have an insider's perspective as to what Silicon Valley actually is. Yes, and it has been an absolute pleasure to see the growth and the expansion and the fabulous impact that we've had over the last 25 plus years. It's a wonderful, wonderful place, and I'm delighted to uh, call it home. It is an incredible place. Uh, my wife and I went on holiday to California, and we designed ourselves a little tour of Palo Alto and Silicon Valley, where we drove around the garages where all the businesses had been started. And uh, yeah, I think Katie was a little bit bemused at the fact I was taking selfies of myself outside garages with her and wondered what the hell I was doing. But is is Silicon Valley really venture capitalist, seed funding, big investment? Is that what Silicon Valley is truly about? Because that's the kind of image you get from the TV shows and looking in from the outside. Is that what it's really about? There is certainly that aspect of Silicon Valley. There's some of the largest VC firms, some of the greatest companies have been built from Silicon Valley. But I would say the real core essence of Silicon Valley is about people. It's about people with passion, people that come without money, people that risk everything, and they come with a vision, and they come with a desire to build something, to make the world a better place, to build something that fills a need, that takes care of an inefficiency in the market. And they work together with other equally committed people to collaboratively define what that something is tested in the market, gain support from others around them, and begin to bring that vision and that passion to market. That's what the core and the essence of Silicon Valley spirit and culture is. Once they have reached a level of success, then they take that next step where they begin seeking maybe it's angel funding from others that have done that. They then grow to a first level of some investment funding once they've grown. And ultimately, when they get to the larger levels, then yes, there are large VC firms. There's lots of incubators. There's lots of places to help them accelerate. But it really starts literally in a garage with two people that don't have money to rent the house. They rent the garage. And they live on beans and rice, and they bring their passion to life before it becomes the big, glitzy Silicon Valley success story. 
a lot of times when I see the programs that talk about the successes, they leave out those first one to 10 years of living in the garage, not taking pictures of it, living in it, trying to sustain on as little as possible based on the passion. It's not about the money. It's about the vision. It's about changing the world. It's about people working really, really hard to bring their views into the world. I love that. And there is so much there for me to unpack in that one piece. Uh, where do I start? I think it's really interesting because you spoke about the first one to 10 years, uh, which is actually quite a long time frame that gets skipped off the stories of people building businesses. And we actually had one of the co-founders of Starbucks, Zev Siegel, on the show a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying that he started by making the furniture for the first store in his parents' basement. And I think it's sometimes those elements that we forget. So why do you think it is that people want to jump straight to give me the funding? Why are they trying to jump from, it's an idea that I've written on a piece of paper, now give me $5 million or pounds? Yeah, so just one clarification. When you say people jump to that, what people jump to that? Well, there's this belief that it's, I've got to get the funding to launch my business. I need the money first. And that's one of the things that we encounter a huge amount at our business, Pop-Up Business School, is people coming to us. And the first question is, where do I get the money? Not how do I launch the business, not how do I get going, but where do I get the money? That's a great, great clarification, because while Silicon Valley is my home, I have spent a lot of time living and working in other parts of the world, including in Europe, where I basically have divided my time over the last uh, few years, working with tons of small businesses, but also larger businesses around all of Northern Europe. And I find outside of Silicon Valley, outside of America even, for example, in Northern Europe and the UK, I find there, there is a perception that I have an idea, now somebody needs to give me money to fund it. And personally, that's one of the things that, that kind of makes me crazy. <laughs> because in my Silicon Valley view, you say, I have an idea. Now give me three people to run this by. Let me talk to people about it. Let me work hard on it. Let's try it out. Give me a few more people to go try to sell it to and see what, they, what their reactions are. Will they buy it? Then I go back and I revise based on that and I try again long before one would ask anyone for funding. Because until you get to a point where you have a product or a service or a something defined and you have customers, people that are willing to actually pay money to use it, you don't have a business. A business means you define something to meet a need. You have customers, people that recognize I have a need and this meets it. And hence, they're willing to pay something in some way, shape, or form in order to access that product. To me, that's the definition of a business. Until you have that, you can't really ask someone to fund it because it isn't a business. But I've got an idea, Jennifer. I have an idea. Surely that's worth a fortune. Oh, I, I look forward to hearing the fortunes that you make when you build that idea into something. And it, in my opinion, it's up to the entrepreneur on his own to fund going from an idea to a business. In Silicon Valley, that's where if you're fortunate enough to own a home or an apartment or a car, 
or anything. You take a mortgage on it. You sell it. You do anything to get that first seed funding that comes from yourself. Now, you might go and ask your friends and family. We talk about friends, family, and fools. And, and we all have friends in our lives for which we have been the friend, family, or fool, where we've said, yes, I absolutely agree. You have a phenomenal idea. It is a problem I have. I want to see the solution to that. Based on that, I personally will loan you or I will give you $5,000 to cover your beans and rice for the next next year so you can actually do that. I will pay your grocery bill. I mean, that's just me as a friend. That's not asking a venture capitalist or an angel investor to fund your, your passion. No, because it needs to be turned into a business to actually know if it's going to work or not. And I really enjoy what you're saying. We talk a lot about starting from sales, not from debt. And I think there's a big distinction between can I borrow some money to get going, that's starting from debt, versus can I go out and get some customers? And if I've got a customer, they'll give me money to fix a problem, then I'd better make it work. And that's starting from sales and profit. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a business. That's truly the Silicon Valley style. I love that because I never would have thought that was the true Silicon Valley style because the perception is it's all glitzy, well-funded, venture-backed. I'll have a nice Mac. I'll sit in my nice office with a lovely chair and I will make things happen. But maybe that's just what the rest of the world thinks Silicon Valley is about. That could actually be the case because I mean, we have certainly had some dramatic successes and there's been some fabulous shows and some fabulous uh, PR to show the glitzy side. One thing I will clarify, and, and when I say Silicon Valley is all about people, it is about people, and there are a lot of them in, in a reasonably small radius, if you will, where, depending on how you count it, anywhere between 6 to 8 million people, people that typically come from other places. The statistic is somewhere that 90% of the people in Silicon Valley were born somewhere else, either another state, another area, another country. And people that come to Silicon Valley tend to be risk takers because it's, while it, it may look glitzy on the television programs, it's, it's not always easy to live in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of people, a lot of traffic, a lot of competition, a lot of high expectations because there are some great successes. So it's a high bar to reach. So there are some challenges with living in Silicon Valley and these you know, six to eight million people. But to the positive, within that six to eight million people, probably 50% of us have in some way had that experience of having a dream, having a passion, having started something, having failed at it or succeeded at it or gotten it to a certain level where we still aren't sure whether it's going to fail or succeed. So there's a lot of support for people that are entrepreneurs and have a passion because people understand what it's like. So in Silicon Valley, compared to a lot of other places I've been, you have this idea. It's fairly easy to call up three people and say, I've got this idea. Can you help me? Can you come together and let's meet and let's talk about it? I need an engineer that does X and I need him to, to do this without making any money because I don't have any money. And chances are they'll say, yes, you know, I know the engineer. He worked on my project 
and he'd be happy to come in and help you to get it to a certain level. So there's there's a lot of advantages in Silicon Valley through people, people that have a shared passion for building something, that have the experience of doing it in the garage without money. And so that's kind of that first step for the entrepreneur is reach out to people. And it's not asking for funding. It's asking for help. It's asking for input, resources. How can I get this going to start with before getting to a level where you've gone from idea to, I think it's becoming a business. I've got people that say they're willing to pay money for it. Then you kind of go to the friends and family and then work your way up. So I love that. It sounds like, Jennifer, at the core of this, it's defining what that passion and purpose and the thing you want to change in the world is, and then pitching the vision to get other people excited. That sounds like that's the very core first step for people. Absolutely. And I, I will also just note that in that that vision, you must be very clear as you start pitching it to people, you must be very clear about the problem you're solving. So I often hear entrepreneurs that, that come with the vision saying, I'm going to build a product that does this. It will look great. It will be the best in the world. It will have all of my skills built in, and it's going to be the glitziest thing ever. And I ask, so what problem is it solving? I want to build something that looks like this, and it's really, really cool. It's got to solve a problem for others. Yes, and so I would strongly suggest for that entrepreneur that has a passion, that passion is not only about building something, but it's got to be about solving a problem. So I would encourage him or her to think about what skills and passion do I have that can be applied to a real challenge, inefficiency, something that's missing in society today. I love that. So I'm almost seeing a Venn diagram in front of me of the skills that I have, the problems that I can see in society, and what's the intersection between the two where I can make a difference. Is that how you're envisaging it? That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Well, there's some homework. If you're listening to the podcast now, do this exercise, list out your skills, list out your passions, list out where you have some talents, and then list out the problems that you can see around you. And I don't know if you've ever done this, Jennifer, but one of the techniques my business partner and I use, I nicknamed it the rant technique, which is just fancy way of saying, like, get angry at things. What's the problems? Go on a rant. Look at what's wrong in the world. And that will give you a whole list of things that you think need fixing. And my rants have ended up in lots of different businesses over the years because you actually found out what annoys you sometimes sometimes it just uniquely annoys me like i think there should be a traffic system in supermarkets because people always bump into each other and it really annoys me but it turns out the rest of the world didn't think that was such a big problem but then quite a few of the problems that i come up with do seem to annoy other people too and they're things that are genuine problems in the world is that the kind of thing you've seen before the rant technique but <laughs> you've probably got an official name for it well, I actually haven't heard it called anything of that nature, but I, I absolutely love it. And I'm envisioning and kind of my way of looking at Silicon Valley, The I, I have a vision for what I want to do. I believe based on my ranting, the problem is this. That's where you call those four people and say, this has always driven me absolutely crazy. Is it the same for you? 
Yes. Does it annoy you too? Yeah. If you get four that say, oh my God, you're absolutely on to something, then you're on to something. Just an example. I mean, Uber. That's how Uber started. This wasn't a, a business strategy. This was the founder of Uber in Los Angeles on a Saturday night trying to get a taxi and saying, this is absolutely flipping ridiculous. I can't find and can't call and I can't get a taxi to get me home. And yet I see 10 cars every five minutes drive by with an empty passenger seat. I feel kind of stupid sticking out my thumb and hitchhiking at, at 12 midnight. There's got to be a better way. They have space in their car. I have a need. That was his rant. I love that. People, they said, hey, you got a point there. <laughs> Let's see if we can figure out a business. That's fantastic. I feel like everyone listening to this should invest in a pocket notebook or use their smartphone to capture everything that annoys them for the next month because there's gold there somewhere. Absolutely. I love it. We could be uh, launching the whole new uh, new wave of entrepreneurs here. <laughs> That's the plan, definitely. So Jennifer, so how did you get into all of this? How did you get into working in innovation and in these big companies? How did this all start for you? Yeah, good question. So I started out kind of by accident in technology. I, I had a, a degree in business and, and had a phone call from a company uh, asking me if I wanted to sell computer systems and those computer systems for businesses. So uh, started out in sales, grew into sales management, ultimately went to a startup, had that wonderful experience in software. And in uh, the third company I worked for was in networking called Ungerman Bass, was uh, competing, if you will, with, with Cisco, and uh, had the opportunity with UB to uh, restructure the company, new leadership team, came to Europe, uh, lived in Europe for a number of years with UB, restructuring, realigning. And when it was time to go back, I was not ready to. <laughs> so uh, accepted an offer from Thunberg, which was based in Oslo, Norway, Today, Tanberg is the uh, video collaboration for Cisco. Oh, wow. We built, we built the international business for Tanberg under my leadership across Europe and then launched Tanberg US, at which point I, I ultimately went back to Silicon Valley and uh, founded Next Step, which is a consulting company that helps organizations grow to the next step, which includes a lot of entrepreneurs and small businesses that need to professionalize and scale. And over the years, we have, have grown with those businesses, which have included various areas within Cisco, Google, Palo Alto Networks, number of companies, as well as Adobe. I'm very proud that had the opportunity with Adobe a few years ago to lead their transformation from creative suites to cloud and really sparked that whole wave of business model change to as a service, which has really become the specialty today of, of Next Step is helping companies grow, change, and adapt and, and transform to be more innovative in the new future. So where did the idea for Next Step come from? Seeing a need. It really, when I went back to the U.S. in launching Tunberg, you know, I really saw a huge need in companies and people and leaders for best practices in how to grow a business. Most of our clients, most entrepreneurs are good at what they do. And when they list out those skills, 
I'm a good software programmer, or I'm a good technical engineer, or I'm good at fixing cars. They're not good at how to make money at it. And so <laughs> really, where Next Step came is, how do you take what you're good at, once you've identified the problem you're solving, and use some best practices, sales, marketing, leadership, to build a business, which means building revenue. Jennifer, one of the things that I picked up on as I was listening was the fact you started, one of the starting jobs was in sales. How do you think that grounding in sales has helped you throughout your career? And yeah, let's start there. We'll let one question at a time, Alan. Sometimes I ask five questions at once and I have to catch myself. One question at a time. Do you think that helped the grounding in sales? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, whatever job title we have, we are all salespeople. And I say that in that, to me, what sales is all about is about understanding people's problems, and it's about listening, and it's about exploring and creatively endeavoring to find and provide solutions to problems. Sales is not about pushing your idea. It's not about saying, I've got this glitzy thing, do you want it? Sales is about going and asking people, what are your challenges? What makes you crazy when you go in the grocery store? <laughs> and then going back and seeing if you can meet their needs. I love that. And sales has been one of the things that I was most scared of when I started up. But having learnt is one of the things that I know has made the most difference to my life, my businesses and everything I've been doing. An entrepreneur who's great at the idea do they learn sales as they're going? Should they learn sales or should they focus on what they're doing? How do you see that element? Yeah, it's a great, often unasked question. And the answer really is that they should. They should learn through practice. And, and I personally believe the only way we really learn something is we try it. And sales is a perfect example of that. It, you can't just go and read a book. There's tons of books on value selling, consumer selling, customer-oriented selling. It's all about getting used to having conversations. And I do find that many, many entrepreneurs, and especially, unfortunately, some of the younger ones that, that come out of education programs today, where they've gone through a innovation leadership course, or they've taken entrepreneurship, they come out with skills on how to write a business plan, how to do a business case, how to put together a pitch deck. Uh, they also come out with skills on how to build software, how to do analytics. Those are fundamental skills that are absolutely important and critical and knowledge. But to really learn sales, it starts with thinking about the problems that you envision in the world, your rants, and then thinking about who might have this problem? In sales terms, that's your target audience. So you think about others that, that may agree with this problem, and you call them up, and you invite them to have a coffee or a Zoom or, or a conversation, and you, you ask them questions. Sales is all about asking questions. What makes you crazy when you go into the grocery? <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> But that's really the, the best way of learning sales is truly getting started in, in having conversations. On episode four of season one, we had a gentleman called Sean Jenkins. 
who started Benefit Focus, an incredibly large software company. And I was so impressed by him. Before he launched the business, he knew he wanted to get experience in sales, software development and leadership. And he actually went and got a commission-only job selling photocopiers as his way of learning sales. Now, talk about throwing yourself in at the deep end. But he did that. And the commissioned-only element for him was very important because there's the motivation to get out there and actually learn sales. And he said it was particularly painful. And I did the same thing. I had a photocopier sales job that was particularly tough. And it can be a ruthless industry, which you never thought, I never thought photocopiers would be ruthless. But it can be. What's the best way for people to learn sales? Yeah, good question. I mean, you, you and, and Sean chose the most painful way. That That's for sure. I mean, Boy, I, did we. I can give you a lot of credit for that. <laughs> that's, that's huge. Uh, there's a, a number of ways. I mean, as, as I say, there's a lot of books. I mean, certainly there are books that, that are good basics. I would strongly suggest reaching out to somebody that does sales coaching, for example. That's one of the things that, that I do, and it's one of the things I, I love doing with people. And it's really just a simple process of go through what are the basics, how do you ask questions, how do you build interest, what do you do with the answers that come back to those questions, and work it through a six-month to a year process. And it doesn't even have to be part of their day job, because in many ways, as I say, sales is part of everybody's job, even if you're an engineer in a large company, British Telecom, for example, there's an aspect where you're selling. You're selling your ideas. You're selling why you should get priority for the funding for this great conference. You're selling to your boss why you should get a promotion. Those kinds of just day-to-day activities can be the core of exercises while you're working with a sales coach and practicing some of the methodologies that are are core to that process. And I've always believed that when I come home and speak to Katie in the evening, I'm selling whether we go for Indian food or pizza, and I'm selling my vision of that. And I think you're right, sales infiltrates every area of life, and you're selling ideas to your kids, you're selling your holiday that you want to go on to, your partner, you're selling we're constantly selling. That's what we do as creatures and humans. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the the people I'm coaching right now, she had a great example two weeks ago that she did manage. She never thought she could, but she did manage to sell to her husband to go on the vacation that she wanted to go on as opposed to what he has had planned for the last five years. (laughs) (laughs) Now there is a sales challenge with some entrenched objections Absolutely. So it it is possible and uh, she's onward and upward now. (laughs) Yes. And I think the people listening, those are some challenges you can practice on and have fun with. They can also be dangerous, but that's a whole nother subject. Uh, So you founded Next Steps to help companies grow. And that's actually one of the things entrepreneurs have to do at the very start. Like if you were to lay out a roadmap to a new business who was like, let's say they've got the first few customers, but they're trying to figure out, like, how do we grow? What is the roadmap to growth? Yeah, the first thing is to really look at those first customers and analyze why are they customers and what are the similarities? What are the differences? 
And when you determine those similarities, the first thing is to really look at and honestly ask yourself, are there a lot more customers that meet these criteria? And if so, then let's put a strategy and a team in place to go leverage that and identify way more that look like that. And that could be through hiring salespeople. It could be through better marketing campaigns to reach in a broader basis. It could and often be through partners, others that sell something similar to you to people that look like your customers. Maybe companies that are already selling to your customers that would want to take you into other organizations. If you look at those customers and they don't seem to have any similarities or there's not enough that fits that criteria to really build a business, then you need to start looking at what are those characteristics and where could we find those characteristics elsewhere and identify new markets and new types of customers and then start that process of validating that those potential new customers have a problem and they see value in what you provide and build in that way. What I often see entrepreneurs do is when they get those first, let's say, 10 customers, they don't take that step back to say, let's analyze those 10 and make a choice whether to go more down that direction or to find new directions. They simply say, we've got 10, we'll keep doing this. And if they've got 10 that are very diverse, they keep trying to do more and more and they never get anywhere. The second thing that I see entrepreneurs do that holds back that growth is they believe that what got them from the garage with a piece of paper to having 10 customers and a little bit of revenue, they believe that what got them from point A to B is going to really get them further. And it doesn't. I mean, those first months, years to get to those 10 customers, that's all about, we call it scrappiness. Do it anything you can, beg, borrow, steal, live on those beans and rice, put your soul and your passion into it with a few other people, ideally, that are willing to do this without pay. That can only go so far. Yes. And so when you get those first 10 or 20 or whatever the number is, then it's time to take a step back. Think about now, not only what customers do we need and how do we reach them, but what do we need as a company? Because now we're kind of starting to look like a company. So we might need to go out and find other skills that we can bring in as leaders or salespeople. We need to kind of professionalize how we do things. And that's often where we come in in Next Step is when they get to 10 or it can be 100 customers, kind of that 2 to $6 million U.S. dollars in revenue. What got them there is not going to get them beyond. It's a critical break point that they need professionalism. They need to really look at how to move forward. And that's, that's a lot of our business with those small to mid-sized companies. I love that you say 2 million turnover is a small company. <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners would be thinking 2 million, that would be my dream business. I guess, where do you know where you're at on the entrepreneurial journey and how do you know when to professionalize? Because I think there's a an element that a lot of people try and professionalize or perfectize. I don't know what the word is. Uh, make perfect their offer before they start. Whereas what you're saying is start and then professionalize later. How do you know where that is? And like, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. There's really not a set cut point, if you will, because every every business is different. But the professionalization, that's such a word. Uh, <laughs> Let's just make up a load of new words for this. That, I love this. Sounds, sounds like a great idea. Um, so to professionalize, you really shouldn't even, in my opinion, shouldn't even think about that until you get a reasonable bulk of customers that are paying money. And that can be, you know, it could be 10, it could be 100, depending upon the level of money and the level of impact that you're having. Ideally, if it's something as a service, which most businesses are today, you not only have customers that have signed up and they've gone beyond the, the trial, so they're, they're out of the premium and into the premium, ideally, you have reoccurring revenue. They've renewed. That says you've got a business. So that's interesting. That is, I've launched, I've got some customers, and they've bought twice. That says you've got a business. So that actually is the bit that you go, they bought again. They must like it. Which I think sometimes I look for these distinctions and these points on the business journey because one of the questions we get asked is, I've been at this, you said, one to ten years in the garage. I've been at this. How do I know if I'm going the right way? How do I know if I'm like, should I keep going? Should I quit? Should I test another idea? I think it's a really important piece of when do you quit and when do you press in? Mm -hmm. As long as you have customers that are buying and if you're in year two, they, they are renewing then you're you're moving in the right direction. You can start at that stage to analyze, is there commonality between these customers? I.e., that says you really have a genuine business going, if there's commonality. If they're all over the map, you've got one in Sri Lanka, you've got one in Singapore, you've got a 15-year-old child in San Paulo, you've got a student in Norway, and there's no commonality you probably don't have a business. You probably have some, some random coincidences with people that believe in your rant. So you <laughs> kind of look at what you've got of customers to gauge are you going on a path of a real business solving a real need for a true target market. If you're going in that path, then keep going. And, and when you get to that point, and I think most entrepreneurs in their heart of hearts, but they know when they get to a breaking point, now, is it 10? Is it 100? You know, they're, they're sleepless at night. Their, their friends and family are getting tired of hearing only about this business, that things are going. That's time to take that step back say, okay, now we need to really think about professionalizing. Let's go to those friends, family, and fools. Let's maybe call up our, our buddy down the street that I know he sold his business two years ago and he's got some money still from that. Maybe he'll be an angel and he'll jump in and, and help me with some seed funding and, and he'll sit here at my kitchen table on Friday nights and, and give me some guidance. That's when you start to engage, you know, in Silicon Valley terms, the angel side, when you validated there's something here. And those angels will help you along with coaches or others that, that may be there to support, can help you define how to professionalize. I love that. And just for the audience, I'd really like to highlight what we said here is that validation comes through sales. True validation comes through repeat sales. 
And then once you've got those sales, do you then go and talk to the angels and the investors and the other pieces? Not the other way around. It's the sales that drive these things. And I think that's critical. And I think that's something that people, there's an order to these things. And if you get the order right, the magic happens. And if you get the order wrong, you end up stalling along the way for many years. I I know because I have. And there is an order to these things. Sometimes I, in my early days, in my desire to be successful, I would try and shortcut the process to be able to get to the bigger steps as quickly as possible. But there is a, you need to take the steps. You need to do the sales and the pop-ups and the different things along the way to prove it works to then get going. So Jennifer, like the work you've done with these people in Silicon Valley, what have been some of the things that you have tried that created unbelievable successes that you weren't expecting? Like you had a go and you went, we did this. Oh, wow, that worked. We should do more of that. Have you had any of those that you've tested over the years in different ways? Yeah, in in lots of ways. I mean, for example, kind of on a big scale is is the work that we did with Adobe. And that's just, it's, it's a great success story with a lot of the entrepreneurial style in a big company in that uh, if you think about Adobe's past background for 20 years, basically their business model was defining a perfect set of software, 18 months to develop it, perfect it, make it absolutely beautiful, release it as the new release of Creative Suites. Very much perfected, very professional, very repetitive that every 18 months the world would embrace the latest version, etc., all of which was great and wonderful until we hit the recession in 2009 when uh, companies were not willing to stop the world in order to buy pretty software. So Yes, let's not renew those licenses. We need that money. Exactly, exactly. So while there's 20 years of great history, it was an opportunity for the leadership team of Adobe to say, hang on, what we've been doing isn't working and will not work through this period. And by the way, people don't want to wait 18 months any longer for software. They want what I want when I want it. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be perfect, but they need capabilities. For example, the iPad had just been launched. People wanted to use Creative Suite's capabilities on the iPad. No time to make that perfect. So we, next step, were involved with Adobe in those, those periods in a lot of different ways of growth and had the opportunity to work with the leadership team and take a step back and say, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's look at what are the problems and the rants that people have. Problems are we need new features immediately. We need to be able to use our capabilities anywhere from any device. We don't need to be tied to a system. We don't have money to spend $2,000. We need to be able to pay $50 to use this capability for the next months. So it was a great opportunity to redefine through understanding the problems of the market, redefine what should be the go-to-market. And that is what led to Creative Cloud, which was really the beginning of the, the great success story of Adobe and moving from perpetual software to experience. And literally the stock went from, I think it was like $19 a share at at the lowest point to the last I checked, it's about, it's over $400 a share. And that's in essence, 10 years later. That's not a bad return. 
No, not a bad return. <laughs> and, and honestly, I can say while Adobe was a, a well-funded, highly functioning professional company, that period, those 10 years, were very entrepreneurial. It was going back to, let's talk to our customers. Let's figure out their problem. Let's try something. We have no idea whether it'll work or not. Let's try it and get out there and see if people buy it. And if they do, great. If they don't, we'll try something different. And it was all about focusing on getting adoption. Then once we had adoption, getting renewals, because that validates that this is working. I love that, what you've just said with, let's try and sell it. If it doesn't sell, we'll move on quickly and try something else. That seems to have been my career is I've tried to sell a lot of things. Uh, Some of them have gone hideously wrong and we sweep them under the rug and we don't talk about them anymore. And then I move on to the next one and pop up business school. Like that's not my first business. I've tried a lot of things to get to something that worked, but it was that process of trying things. Can you think of anything that you've tried that you've swept under the rug that you've gone, that didn't work, uh, that you could tell us about? Or is that all secret and hush hush, it's under the rug and it's staying there? There's there's definitely no secrets. And there, there's lots of things that I could probably dig up uh, <laughs> out of lots of rugs because it's the same thing fail fast, fail often, and, and move forward. But uh, one of the, the more recent experiences that I've had is I've, I've always had a vision and a passion for A, helping people, and B, collaboration and connections. And so over the the past three to four years, I've put personally a lot of time and energy into something called peer learning and peer collaboration and built what is today a division of Next Step called the Executive Growth Alliance, which basically is a concept of bringing together four to ten executives from different companies that have a similar challenge and using EGA methodology, proven methodology for peer learning, having them learn from, collaborate with, and work together to solve those challenges. And like most entrepreneurs, I I had the, the vision that this is just, it's common sense. Everyone needs it. Yes, I talk to people. People nod in their head. Yes, we need it. All good. All great. So I I launched very voraciously towards that path a couple of years ago with a a fairly traditional model of bringing people together in person to work on these challenges with the belief that their companies, because these are people typically mid-sized to large companies, their companies would pay what I considered, and from my research, a reasonable amount of money, somewhere around 10 to 15,000 U.S. dollars a year for this type of service. What I I learned is it's a lot more challenging to get people (laughs) to A, participate, B, pay. Because in this case, it was Johnny would be the person participating, but his executive team and HR had to sign off to pay, etc. Kind of became a bit of a challenge. So fortunately, timing is is everything. I, I had reached out to a colleague who has a specific peer learning platform called Circles and talked to him about the opportunity of potentially using his peer learning platform to do some of this virtually instead of having to rent rooms and bring people together in local peer groups. We'd had those conversations. We'd started planning towards that at the end of 2019. So here comes COVID-19. Uh, you see where the, you see where Unbelievable timing. 
Yeah. Serendipity and timing is everything. <laughs> <laughs> that you Outside cannot do of- anything about. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, so fortunately, in March, when we couldn't do anything in person, we brought the platform up. Uh, we've restructured EGA. It's no longer a year commitment for $10,000. It's a come in if you've got $75 to $200 a month, participate, gain something via the virtual platform. And I, I think, still early, but I think, we have paying customers now. We're not yet at the stage of renewals, but I, I think you know, we have something that may turn out to be a business. I love that. I love that. And I think this is a really important piece that we all go through these phases whenever we launch something new. And I launched the first season of Rebel Entrepreneur recently and then was thinking, you know, are people are going to come back for episode two and episode three and episode four? And thankfully, the numbers have been good and they keep coming back, which has then inspired me to press on and deliver more and more and more. But I think just because one has been successful in the past doesn't mean you get a bypass on going through this process every time. And if anything, it might even get a bit more painful as one gets older. Uh <laughs> Older and kind of you become a little bit more uh, cocky, for lack of a better word. <laughs> well, well, of course I have done this before. Of course it'll work. No, 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 no. The world has changed. The market has changed. People have changed. Never assume. And that's how you stay relevant is by going out and testing these things and having a go. And then you've got a whole bunch of new stories to be able to tell and experience and maybe a new business as well. So, Jennifer, where are you heading next? Because you've built Next Steps. You're launching this new business. Like, where are you heading next? What are you working on? Yeah, good question. I, I'm putting a lot of energy into EGA. You know, we're, we're launched, but we, we need to get it to a real business with those renewals. So that's a lot of my time and energy, as well as continuing to support Next Step very much. But where I really see long term in five to 10 years, my greatest value is giving back to society. And kind of back to my vision, helping others achieve their potential. And so I, I absolutely love things like these podcasts, ways to coach entrepreneurs one-to-one, to do workshops with people that are starting out to speak virtually or in person. So I've just recently launched my own website and brand, if you will, jennifervessels.com that talks a little bit about the various things that that I've done and and would really embrace anyone that that comes there and and wants to reach out and have a conversation. I love that. Thank you so much. It has been a true pleasure having this interview with you and the ideas that you've shared and the energy and breaking down the myths of what Silicon Valley is and isn't and how businesses operate. It has been so much fun. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, thank you. It it has been absolutely fun for me. And I just I encourage everyone out there that is listening to get started. That's what we do in Silicon Valley. Get started. Look at your skills. Look at the problems, your rants that you, you believe in the world. See where you have something that's a possibility. Call people. And then sell it. And then sell it. Yeah. My closing thought for this episode for you today is sales. It all starts with sales. Like you need an idea, obviously, but you've got to sell something until you sell something. Nothing happens. You don't have a business. If you sell something, you have a customer, you have a business, you have cash flow, you have money coming in. 
sales is the foundation of all of this. So if you want to build your business, if you want to grow your business, where else would you start than sales? You've got to sell it. Yes, market it. Yes, sell it. Yes, get it out there. Yes, working on the making it the best you can. Sales is the key element. And both Simon and I have discovered over the years that there is a direct correlation with how much we have studied sales, how much we have learned to sell, how much we've learned to connect and to be able to find out what people's needs are and then help them get that. That is what's made a difference in our business's size and in the end, our bank balances. So if you want to grow a business, you want to help people, then learn about sales. That is what I would love you to take away from this. And we need to stop as a group being afraid of sales because actually sales can be an ethical thing. Sales is about finding someone who's got a problem, uncovering what that problem is and helping them overcome it by selling them something. If they don't have the problem, don't sell them something. Learning how to sell ethically, how to connect with people and how to overcome them the problems they have is the way to make money. And one of my favourite quotes on this subject, which is actually from Zig Ziglar, is you can have anything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want in life. And that, that is sales. So what I would love you to do is get out there and sell. One other thing I did want to mention at the end of the show today is you'll notice that some of the episodes I'm recording and I'm saying I'm in Leipzig in Germany, some I'm in the UK, some I'm in Mexico. I'm not actually traveling around that quickly with Katie. I've been recording season two for the last six or seven months and I've been slowly recording the different episodes in different locations. The date today is February the 18th as I'm recording this, 2021, and I am actually in Mexico and I probably will remain in Mexico. We're in Puerto Vallarta by the beach. It's stunning. We'll probably remain in Mexico for the next five or six months whilst we wait for the pandemic to ease before we can get back with our travels. But I just wanted you to know that because it'll be a bit strange, like Alan's in Germany this week. Next week, he's in England. Next week, he's in Mexico. The episodes have been recorded in a different order and been released in a different way. And if you happen to be in Mexico and want to have a coffee or hang out, that would be amazing. Or I shall see you when we're able to actually do meetups after this pandemic is done. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Entrepreneur. Get out there, sell something, build your business and make your dreams come true. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a rebel entrepreneur.